The Senate has passed Democrats' landmark tax climate and prescription drugs bill. The Inflation Reduction Act will cut energy costs now and in the future by deploying American-made clean energy and by making the biggest investment to battle the climate crisis in U.S. history. And I'll talk with Crane's commercial real estate reporter, Danny Ecker, about how the city has added a twist to its Invest Southwest initiative to further promote development in under-resourced areas. It's kind of a little bit of a inside baseball, hard to follow change in the, in the process. But the point of it is that the community is going to be involved in the vision portion of this at a much bigger level at a much earlier stage. I'm Amy Guth, and this is Crane's Daily Gist for Tuesday, August 9th. In these uncertain times, it's important to have people you trust by your side. When 11,000 local business owners needed a Paycheck Protection Program loan, they turned to their Wintrust banker to secure funding because that's a relationship they can count on. Businesses are navigating some of the biggest challenges they will ever face. Wintrust is here to answer their calls. They'll answer yours, too. Start the conversation at Wintrust.com slash Daily Gist. Member FDIC. The city has added a twist to its Invest Southwest approach, reconfiguring the process to spur development in under-resourced corridors. Joining me now to talk about that is Crane's commercial real estate reporter, Danny Ecker. Danny, welcome back. Hey, Amy, how are you? Well, thanks. So tell me about this new twist to the Invest Southwest program. So a quick rehash of what Invest Southwest is. This is the initiative that Mayor Lightfoot launched early in her administration It was sort of the overarching banner to spur economic development and real estate development in commercial corridors and blighted neighborhoods on the south and west sides, you know, saying, okay, we are going to channel $750 million worth of resources over the next several years to, you know, focus on incentives and setting up a much more formal process to really try to catalyze uh, new development in commercial corridors that that really just need public investment and extra hand to kind of get going because these areas have seen decades of disinvestment. So that has been in play now for two, a little over two years. Every few months, they would put out a few more RFPs to say, hey, we've gathered some feedback from the community. Here are the next sites in these specific corridors that we want to target Hey, developers, what ideas do you have? Submit your bids and your designs of what you might do here. They pick one and then they go and say, try to get them off to the races. That's what's been happening. So what's new is that the city is now issued for two new sites. One is in Woodlawn and one is in East Garfield Park. Instead of an RFP, it's an RFQ, a request for qualifications instead of for proposals where they're taking a step back and saying, look, we have had some feedback from developers who, by the way, we need to be really careful with because we're trying to get them to invest in some of these areas. We've had a lot of feedback from developers saying that they're spending a lot of money and time putting together these proposals for these sites. And if it doesn't go well, well, that's a a lot of uh, resources they've thrown away. So they're saying, let's step back and at least get a pool of developers that are qualified and a pool of architects that are qualified uh, for these projects then we'll kind of let them look at each other and say, here's our short list of, of developers. Here's our short list of designers. You guys look at each other, figure out who you want to dance with. Then we'll go to the community 
and say, all right, what do these corridors need? And then they'll come up with an idea that they'll pitch, which then the city will choose a winner. So it's kind of a little bit of a inside baseball, hard to follow change in the, in the process. But the point of it is that the community is going to be involved in the vision portion of this at a much bigger level at a much earlier stage. And I think what that tells us really is that it's, it's so hard. And I think that's what invest Southwest has, has shown. It's so difficult to get consensus among community members in a neighborhood about what it needs and what it needs first out of what it needs. And I think that the city has certainly prioritized this and is, has learned from the first couple of years of invest Southwest, how to perhaps tweak that process and, uh, hope to make it better because, again, they, they need to make sure that uh, they're not discouraging developers from wanting to participate. That, the community piece is really important. You noted in your reporting there was a project in Auburn-Gresham along 79th that, that kind of ran into some resistance from the community because it really wasn't what the community felt like needed to be there. Yeah, that was the case study that Maurice Cox, the planning commissioner, cited that Auburn-Gresham was really an example of, of what they want to avoid, which is that they went through this whole process. They selected a development team and then they went to the community and they said, Hey, here's what they like to build. And a lot of vocal residents were saying, wait a minute, we don't want that. We don't need more affordable housing here. We want more commercial development. Uh, that's what this corridor of 79th street in that case uh, needs. So they had to effectively start over and, and redrop their plans, which again, is more time and money. And that's precious when uh, you're dealing with community developers um, in these areas. So we are seeing it with some other Invest Southwest projects. They're on their way to development. They're getting city approvals. They've helped developers that don't have a lot of exposure get connected with higher profile firms and other architecture firms. So I think those aspects of it are really helping. And, you know, I think that they're just trying to fine tune this process so that it's more sustainable and more effective. Yeah. Definitely reasonable. How many projects have happened so far? There were 10 Invest Southwest RFPs that went out. The earliest ones that were issued about two years ago, they've gone through all this community review process. We've seen a project in Englewood already start going through and getting city approvals. There's complex pieces. That's really what the biggest challenge is for for these developments is the complexity of the capital stack, how many different sources of funding they need to be able to make one project work, including different kinds of equity, different kinds of debt, plus the incentives um, such as TIF money, low-income housing tax credits, new markets tax credits. There's all kinds of pieces that all have to line up together. And that's what the city is trying to do is, is really handhold developers through this process and really grease the skids for them to move through. So we have not yet seen those first uh, Invest Southwest projects really break ground and, and uh, really get going in a big way yet, but that's close. And so the two new RFQs that are kind of the, the newest piece of this, it's a collection of properties, really. So one is a group of city-owned sites around the CTA Green Line Kedzie Station, and then uh, in East Garfield Park, there's another series of parcels along 63rd in, in Woodlawn. What, what's the vision for those two zones? That's an, a noteworthy difference is that, you know, with Invest Southwest, they were kind of looking at commercial corridors and saying, okay, where's the missing tooth in the smile? And saying, all right, how do we fill in this one site? Well, with these, they're saying, let how do we create the commercial corridor? These are not 
existing places that are really, you know, pedestrian hubs, but they are, you know, within range of areas where there has been some investment. So for example, in East Garfield Park, you have the Hatchery, which has been a, a pretty successful food and beverage incubator that's just steps from the Kedzie station. And this would be three different sites kind of straddling Kedzie right around that, that L stop and could have three different properties that would, would be built there. In Woodlawn, you're just less than a mile away from where the Obama Presidential Center is going up. And you also have the 63rd Street and Cottage Grove L-stop there. So there are anchors that are nearby. And um, the one in Woodlawn is, again, I think they're talking about potentially six buildings. So these are more ambitious projects, which again, makes it even more important to have community input very clear and established before anyone you know, starts pitching a vision for what this should be. Yeah. And both of those are, are in TIF districts, correct? Both of them are in TIF districts. So the city is in the process right now of extending the life of both of the TIF districts uh, that encompass these. The incentives like TIF are, are crucial. You know, the, these projects really don't happen without public investment. So the next step here is mid-September. The responses will kind of know more about the RFQs and then... What's the timeline beyond that? So the planning department is hoping that they can, after they shortlist the developers and the architecture firms, they're hoping that they can have the proposals vetted and pick a winner or winners by the end of the year. After that point, they would then, you know, the winners would then go through, you know, going through city review process and applying for uh, incentives and other credits. So you know, it, we, we would probably still be at least a year until we would have work getting done on anything here, but this is uh, uh, the beginning of a process they hope will lead to the establishment of new commercial corridors that are kind of in the path of, of development uh, of other areas of town. And as for that community involvement, or, or if, you know, there are maybe developers or architects who are interested what kind of resources are, are available for them to maybe get involved in this process at this point? So there's a couple pre-development information sessions coming up in August and mid-August. The Woodlawn one, I believe, is August 15th, and the East Garfield Park is on the 16th. And then there will be some workshops after they have these shortlists of uh, developers and designers. They want to do community workshops. Um, they haven't really specified exactly the time frame for those yet, but you know, presumably those would be sometime late September or in October uh, once they can finalize those lists. And really, they were going to want people to come out and, and voice their opinion about uh, what should go in these locations, because that's going to be crucial so they don't end up with the same issues they've had uh, to date. Yeah. Well, I'm sure we'll talk more about this when we know more as the process rolls out, but I appreciate you talking it through today. Of course. Thanks a lot, Amy. Coming up, Indianapolis-based pharmaceutical giant Eli Lilly says the new Indiana abortion ban will force hiring out of state. We'll talk about that and more right after this. Here's a great way to stay in touch with Crane's Daily Gist. Subscribe to the Crane's Morning 10. It's our daily newsletter featuring the 10 biggest stories of the day. To subscribe, visit chicagobusiness.com slash morning10.
The Senate passed a landmark tax, climate and health care bill, moving a consolidated version of President Joe Biden's domestic agenda on a path to becoming law. On this vote, the yeas are 50, the nays are 50. The Senate being equally divided, the vice president votes in the affirmative and the motion to proceed is agreed to. The clerk will report the bill. The bill moved on to the House, where the Democratic majority is expected to pass it on Friday. Bloomberg noted that Democrats called the bill the largest investment in fighting climate change ever made in the U.S., and it's projected to help cut greenhouse gas emissions by about 40 percent from 2005 levels by the end of this decade. The legislation also aims to prevent large corporations from exploiting tax breaks to pay little, if any, tax, and would allow Medicare to negotiate drug prices for the first time. It's also forecast to make the first substantial cut to budget deficits in more than 10 years. President Biden applauded Senate Democrats for pushing it through, saying, quote, it required many compromises. Doing important things almost always does. Republicans, united in opposition, argued it wouldn't stop the historic levels of inflation and would impose taxes that could tip the U.S. economy into recession. The Senate vote was the culmination of a year and a half of party infighting among Democrats about the scope of the bill, which the president had once hoped would be so sweeping as to rival FDR's New Deal. But though trimmed from its original $6 trillion price tag to one of around $437 billion, Bloomberg noted in reporting that the bill will nonetheless be a cornerstone achievement for President Biden. So here are some specific key elements of the legislation. First, Medicare would be allowed to negotiate drug prices, starting with 10 high-priced drugs by the middle of this decade and expanding from there. It would cap out-of-pocket drug costs for seniors enrolled in Part D at $2,000 per year. The bill also has roughly $374 billion in climate and energy spending, like expanded tax credits for renewable energy projects. Government revenue will be raised from the establishment of a 15% corporate minimum tax on large firms, a 1% excise tax on the value of stock buybacks, and an $80 billion boost to the IRS for enforcement. The minimum corporate tax would affect fewer than 150 companies in a given year. Large tech companies like Alphabet's Google and Meta's Facebook could face that levy. Bloomberg noted that the tax on stock buybacks has largely been shrugged off by Wall Street analysts, though some have noted it could spur corporations to issue dividends over repurchasing shares to boost equity prices. But as Bloomberg also noted, the tax increases are also noteworthy for who isn't affected. Democrats and President Biden ran on reversing former President Donald Trump's 2017 tax cuts, including the corporate rate, which remain untouched. High earners, including millionaires and billionaires, also won't face higher taxes. And the bill also doesn't address two key priorities for many Democrats. One, implementing a 15 percent global minimum tax deal that Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen negotiated with nearly 140 countries last year and increasing the $10,000 cap on the state and local tax deduction, or SALT. Chicago is at the center of a national social experiment, guaranteed income for low-income residents. Crane's Corley J. reported that in June, 5,000 Chicago residents received the first of 12 monthly payments of $500, no strings attached, as part of the Chicago Resilient Communities pilot. And Cook County has announced that its Promise Guaranteed Income pilot will soon distribute $39 million to 3,250 low-income residents in monthly payments of $500 for two years. According to the University of Chicago Inclusive Economy Lab, which plans to measure the impact of both pilots, together the pilots represent the largest investment in unconditional cash assistance in a single metropolitan area in the U.S. 
The programs are funded by the Federal American Rescue Plan. Jay also reported that the U Chicago Economy Lab will give participants the opportunity to share their experiences, planning to conduct impact evaluations that aim to understand impacts across things like financial stability, long-term economic mobility, well-being, and mental health. That according to Carmelo Barbaro, the lab's executive director. Audra Wilson, CEO of the Shriver Center on Poverty Law, told Cranes that these monthly income programs give people the freedom to use the money in ways that best benefit them instead of being stuck inside the narrow constraints of other aid programs like the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, or SNAP, or the Temporary Assistance for Needy Families Program. Jay reported that in 2019, Stockton, California, became the first in the country to conduct a guaranteed income pilot, distributing $500 for 24 months to 125 residents who lived in neighborhoods with a median income of below $46,033. Key findings showed that recipients were healthier, with less depression and anxiety, and the monthly payments reduced month-to-month income fluctuations as well as enabling recipients to find full-time employment. The program also found that once basic needs were met, the capacity for goal-setting and risk-taking were created. Jeremy Rosen, director of economic justice at the Shriver Center, said, quote, We've heard this narrative from people who oppose these things, that such payments would, quote, keep people from working, that they would keep people mired in poverty, that they wouldn't help families advance. And he said, what we saw was, in fact, exactly the opposite. Coworking company WeWork said offices were 72% full at the end of the second quarter for the first time matching the occupancy rate from before the pandemic in late 2019. The occupancy rate, which is the percentage of its total desks that were rented out, dropped dramatically during the first year of the pandemic when many tenants canceled their rental contracts and decided to work from home. That metric hit its low point of 46% a year later. Bloomberg reported that the company pitched a turnaround story when it went public last year in a blank check merger. Bloomberg reported that WeWork's buildings have slowly filled back up and management has maintained that more customers are drawn to its flexible office space offering as they attempt to figure out long-term real estate strategies in a new world of hybrid and remote work as the norm. It now has 62,000 subscriptions to its all-access pass, a product that allows customers to book space for shorter increments of time. But occupancy aside, the second quarter performance was less rosy. The co-working company had $815 million in sales, missing an average of analyst estimates compiled by Bloomberg of $821 million. The company continues to lose money and is narrowing the gap more slowly than predicted. Last quarter, it reported a $635 million loss when analysts expected $479 million. Its loss in the second quarter is wider than the first quarter's $504 million. But still, as Bloomberg noted, the company is working on taming its once high levels of cash burn. In the first quarter of 2021, WeWork lost $2.1 billion hit by the shockwaves of the pandemic and due to a hefty settlement payment to its co-founder and former CEO, Adam Newman. The company has also reportedly looked to expand its software offerings. In April, it said it would start selling tech tools to help companies manage their workers and their physical spaces. On Friday, Indiana became the first U.S. state to pass anti-abortion legislation since the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. About a dozen other states had so-called trigger laws pre-approved by legislatures to go into effect in the event that Roe v. Wade was struck down. 
Now, Eli Lilly, one of Indiana's largest employers, said the state's newly passed restrictions on abortion will force the drug maker to, quote, plan for more employment growth outside the state. A growing list of companies, including Citigroup, Apple, Bumble, and Levi Strauss, among others, are offering benefits for reproductive care services in states that have imposed abortion restrictions. But Bloomberg noted that Indianapolis-based Eli Lilly's announcement marks a major escalation by a multinational company that employs 10,000 people in Indiana, where the drug maker was founded in 1876. The company said in a statement, quote, We are concerned that this law will hinder Lilly's and Indiana's ability to attract diverse scientific, engineering, and business talent from around the world. The statement continued, Given this new law, we will be forced to plan for more employment growth outside our home state. Eli Lilly reported $6.5 billion in second quarter revenue and employs more than 37,000 people around the world. Indiana's abortion ban goes into effect on September 15th, and polls consistently show that a majority of those in the U.S. support the right to abortion access. And some Republican Party strategists are urging less restrictive local laws amid signs of voter backlash. Voters in Kansas, a state won by former President Trump by nearly 15 percentage points in 2020, rejected amending the state constitution to allow the state legislature to restrict abortion. That's Crane's Daily just for now. Check in on our continuous news feed at chicagobusiness.com. Thanks so much to today's guest, Crane's commercial real estate reporter, Danny Ecker. You can follow all of our conversations on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to find your audio on demand. Don't forget to subscribe and please rate and review Crane's Daily Gist. Our show is produced by Todd Manley at Earsight Studios. I'm Amy Guth. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll meet you right back here next time.